On this week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to conclude our discussion on experiential therapy. I'm going to start by just describing kind of what Carl Whitaker envisioned a healthy family to be. And then we're going to move on into the next two branches of experiential therapy. And these two offshoots of Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir's work are things that might be more recognizable uh, in today's therapy environment. Meaning that there's a high likelihood that if you've received any type of therapy that's experiential in nature, it's going to be from one of these two types of models. And that's emotionally focused couples therapy and internal family systems. And both of these have kind of come out of experiential therapy. Our experiential therapy, meaning that they share similar characteristics as a whole with some of the main principles of experiential therapy, things like a theoretical, new in session experiences, etc. And so we're going to dive into those two things and we're going to discuss briefly the theorist and a summary of kind of how they envision a person and how they do therapy. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. I just want to start this podcast with an apology for the last podcast. I did not realize there was a glitch when I had uploaded it. And for some reason, only five minutes was showing up online. So I apologize to all my listeners who tried to listen to that and realized there was only five minutes of it. And it took me a while to get enough feedback on this to understand there had been an issue. So that issue has been corrected. So the third podcast on experiential therapy is available and it has been corrected to the full episode. So I appreciate all the feedback on that. And I hope if you haven't listened to it, that you will take the time to listen to it uh, today. All right, so I'm going to pick up kind of where we left off with concluding symbolic experiential therapy by talking about Carl Whitaker and how he envisioned a family that was healthy. And I kind of want to conclude that before moving into kind of the offshoots. And I call them the offshoots, but I think they're just experiential therapy that have more recently been utilized and developed. And there might be some disagreement with that, but the point is is that we see experiential therapy at its core from Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir, and then we see theorists coming off of that and starting to practice this system. Then we see that other people start to advance it and kind of change it and increase some of the theories in it, even though it's atheoretical. And then we're going to kind of get some of these more recent, modernized versions of experiential therapy that you may have actually heard about, 
versus the experiential therapy that Virginia Satir and Carl Whitaker did. Though there are people that currently still practice the more traditional approach to symbolic experiential therapy in the United States. And there's still some folks who are alive today who are still practicing that shadowed or worked under Carl Whitaker or with Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir. So Carl Whitaker saw a healthy family as a family that carries its own sense of self-esteem. He also felt that they live in the present. You know, to use a metaphor that I've used in the past about time travel and mental health. And mental health, we don't necessarily want you to be time traveling per se. Meaning that oftentimes individuals get stuck in the past or in the future in their thinking. Meaning they're not in the present They're not living and are acting with their senses with what is actually happening real time. But instead, their mind has traveled back in time and it's ruminating on things that cannot be changed. Or it's time traveling to the future and ruminating on possibilities, the what ifs. Things that have not yet happened, so therefore they cannot change. And so Carl Whitaker felt that a healthy family lived in the present but it wasn't completely detached from the past. There was a light or small connection there. And it had comfortability where it was comfortable with the future. So there was a little bit of time travel here, but not as the focus. Meaning the focus was to be centered in the presence, but to understand and have a connection with your roots and understand and have a connection in a lighthearted way with the future versus the extreme, which is dread, rumination, depression, anxiety that's created from potentials. Carter Whitaker also felt that there was this desire to have play, to have fun, to be connected, to be passionate or aggressive, as well as a need for separation. And sometimes we see problems when any of these are in the extremes. And what I mean by that is if everything is all play, and play here is not sex. Because when people hear play with couples and families, sometimes they jump to sex. And though sex might be part of that for the couple, this is holistically as the family, having fun, being able to be goofy with each other, being able to create memories and excitement by doing things that are playful. But that can be an extreme too, where there's no maturity, there's only play. There's no boundary, there's only play. And this can be really seen in the couple's relationship. You know, and I I jokingly say with play, um, and it kind of ties in again to the passionate and aggression that when it comes to sex, like you can see those two things. And if you've experienced sexual contact with another individual, we've had similar experiences that's more passionate, right? That's connected, deep, romantic. And we've also seen sex that's more aggressive, more animalistic, more in the moment, in the heat of the moment. And if we see those in the extreme, you know, there can be an extreme focus on the sexual aspect of the relationship and not other areas of fun and connected and play where couples can just be silly and be goofy together. Though that can happen in the sexual experience as well. And then there's also this need for separation where individuals need to be themselves and need to have their own space. And we can see the, that in the extreme is that kind of emotional cutoff we've talked about in the past where there's just this complete disconnect. 
where people are so separate, their lives are so disengaged as a family, they barely touch each other. And I don't mean physically, I just mean in their lives. Carl Whitaker felt that the rules and the roles are flexible, meaning that people can change roles if needed and bounce back to roles if needed. He felt that communication has emotion and that things that are said that are irrational can be protected by kind of a lighthearted perspective and a sense of the absurd. And that's where we get back to his going to the extreme. And we've all experienced that when somebody has said something and we're like, what? (laughs) You know, and when it comes to couples where there's that vulnerability, emotion can be very intense, not just in verbal communication, but in nonverbal communication. And oftentimes it can be incongruent, meaning that we put on those masks and our body language betray our thought processes because of our emotions. The group or the family has the freedom to admit non-members if needed. Parents have equal sharing roles and they can deal with sensitive family matters without themselves becoming defensive or feel threatened. There's a connection cross-generationally above us and below us. He saw parents as primary individuals and then their secondary role was as parents and that they had the right and the freedom to step in and out of those roles. So they could be tender one day, aggressive the next, vulnerable one day, guarded the next. And we can kind of see this in an example today where parents sometimes sacrifice their individualism in order for their children. And if that happens, you can see this trend of parental separation and divorce or couple separation and divorce after children have launched from the home because they have sacrificed their individuality with each other. They've surrendered their coupleship and put everything that they had into the children. And a lot of that is energy used to protect them from what is happening between the two of them. And we've talked a lot about this in some of the other systems, you know, triangulation. We're also going to talk about later on coalitions and alliances, but I don't want to get too far into that. And then lastly, you believe that each family member takes responsibility for themselves and is encouraged to do so by the other family members. And this is to be done in a way that is non-shaming. Because this could be done all the time, and it is, but oftentimes there's a lot of shaming involved in that. And we can see that families sometimes blame what I have entitled the scapegoat for the problems of the family instead of taking responsibility for it themselves. And this is easily seen in families where the marriage has cooled off between the couple and one of the couple or both of them seek connection and emotional security through the child. They're not taking responsibility for what's happening in the marriage. And they use the children to address that. And then eventually what can happen is a child's behavior starts to respond. And then instead of taking initiative and accepting the responsibility, they put more pressure down on the child. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into some of the other therapies that do a great deal of explanation and these type of things. So let's jump into emotionally focused therapy, or as I've sometimes heard, emotionally focused couples therapy. The theorists here are Leslie Greenberg and Susan Johnson. And this therapy is an offshoot of experiential therapy. And kind of the big ideas here is that the couples attempt to regulate emotions via the relationship. And how they see change is that the therapist kind of comes in and helps and coaches the clients into identifying primary emotions 
and then helping them create new patterns. Here, this is that in-session experience, new experiences of interaction. And let me get in a little bit of what I mean by that. So these theorists saw the relationships that we have that are romantic or connected in nature, such as marriage, are about effect regulation, meaning couples try to regulate their emotions or their emotional state through their relationships. And that what they saw as secondary emotions, such as anger, were used to accomplish that regulation of deeper, more what they call primary emotions. And to give you an example of what I mean by that, you might have a partner who has a fear of abandonment. Maybe they had a parent in the home that left. Maybe they've had early relationships where there was this sense that they were not worthy and they were left. And so they have this sense of abandonment, which precludes then a thought process and a fear that somebody will do it again. And the closer somebody is, the harsher that experience is going to be. And so they are in relationship and that fear of abandonment does not come out as fear. Instead, it comes out as a secondary emotion, anger towards their partners for any type of behavior that triggers that fear. And so this is very important to understand because we get triggered by all kinds of different things. And in this case, we're getting triggered into an emotional response based on a past trauma that we might have experienced, which in this case is abandonment, right? So there's this fear of abandonment. Maybe they didn't even experience the abandonment, but there, there is something in their makeup, in their personhood that has this fear of that. Maybe they've seen it happen in somebody else and they've told themselves they don't ever want that to happen to them. Maybe one of their core values is to be accepted and chosen. And therefore, the thought of abandonment, which is the parallel opposite of that, is something that causes them a great deal of fear. But in the end, instead of addressing the primary, a secondary emotion comes out. And then clients are in because one of the couples is always angry. And for me as a therapist, when I'm listening to couples and I hear repetitive statements about secondary emotions, I'm always curious about what is the primary emotion. So the goal of this therapy is focused on identifying the internal and what they call dysregulated emotions, called primary emotions, and kind of inviting the partners to expose and express them to each other with the understanding that vulnerability helps to soften the partner who then responds with acceptance and compassion. And this in turn strengthens the attachment bond, at least in theory, and then reduces the symptoms. And so that's kind of this in a nutshell. And what's interesting about this therapy is a lot of other couples-focused therapy or therapies with couples actually tend to avoid emotions, whereas this one is like knee-deep in emotions. And it wants to get those emotions out there. It wants to allow them in a safe environment to be expressed. And that's emotionally-focused couples therapy. So let's jump in quickly into eternal family systems. So this is Richard Swartz, and there's an interesting story about how this came to be. Richard Swartz was actually working, I think it was in the 90s, with individuals who were struggling with eating disorders. And he often heard phrases like, part of me wants to eat and part of me doesn't want to eat. Right? And he started to listen to what people were saying about that. And he developed this experiential therapy where he felt that people were divided metaphorically into parts, including this like 
positive healing self at its core. And he kind of felt that the problems were damaged parts are protected from healing. And then he believed that if you were able to create a safe place where protecting self would step back, the healing self could start to do what its job was, which is to heal. Now remember, in experiential therapy, the family is its own healer. The individual has what it needs to change and to heal itself. So we're kind of diving here into one of the major themes of experiential therapy. So he felt that the self was divided into parts. And there were some different parts that were the managers. And these were the parts of the self that protected the wounded parts, which were called exiles, from further damage and managed the negative outward effects of the exiles. And the exiles were those parts of the self that have been hurt and damaged. And when they're triggered, I know that's a key word for this podcast, they usually have a strong emotional and sometimes acting out component. I've often seen an illustration where some of these exiles are prisoners in a prison and the managers are kind of like the administration of the prison that kind of keeps these things locked up, keeps them from harm, right? Keeps them from harming themselves or the other parts. And I don't know how accurate that is. If Richard Schwartz was sitting here, he'd be like, I don't know if I like that, but that's what I've seen. There's another part called firefighters. And those are the parts of the self that get called in when the exiled part of the self gets activated to both control and protect the exile from acting out in public. And I've heard this called almost like a PTSD you know, response. And kind of how I've seen this is, is what do firefighters do? Now, they come in and they do what? Their job is to protect life and put out fires. Whatever property-wise is the third goal, right? So if it's life versus property, life is going to come first. If it's fire versus property, you know, they're going to put out the fire. And they do so with extremely pressurized water. And I've heard different things as to kind of how people envision these parts. And this theory is often used in addictions counseling because they kind of see some of these as those things inside of us that get triggered up that desire us to use, right? Which is kind of like this firefighter response to use, for example, heroin to keep those exiles deep down inside. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this therapy alone, but it's very complex. And I just kind of want you to understand the core aspects, which we are... We have these metaphorical parts of us, including this self, that has the ability to heal when there's woundedness. But sometimes other parts get in control and the healing part cannot heal. And so then the therapist is trying to provide that safe place for the parts to be acknowledged, right? Because no parts are bad. They all serve their purpose. But to kind of help the client walk through that so that the wounded part or the part that's in control can step back and let the healing self do its work. So we're going to conclude there with experiential therapy. And then next week, we're going to pick up with strategic theories. Again, thank you for listening. I appreciate all the feedback I receive. And remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family, and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, 
And maybe you are, but you're not alone.